Well, good morning. My name is Taylor Reevely, and normally at this point in our gathering, someone would get up to read the scriptures, uh, and I would get to preach. This morning, however, uh, we get to enjoy some of the benefit of being one church in many locations. Uh, John Roberts, the pastor of our Gladstone congregation, is preaching this morning and is continuing our series in Matthew because, well, that would be the sermon he would have been preaching in Gladstone anyways. Uh, John is a teacher and a coach at heart. Um, he is a very, very thankful that the 49ers are in the Super Bowl, and his wife Katie and their kids Kyle, Olivia, and Lincoln are also excited for him. Uh, one thing about John I need to warn you about is that if you have pre-ordered a book, John already has read the book, and he could give it to you for free because it's just on his shelf. So just ask him if you need something. But I asked John to preach this morning for several reasons. Um, and I don't want you to be ignorant of those, I don't want you to assume those, but uh, today is, and she'll hate me, is Andy's birthday, and she can count on one hand the number of times that I have been able to help her get the girls ready for church, and so this morning I wanted to give her that gift and take some time to celebrate her this week. Uh, but we also wanted to communicate in earnest that um, our participation collectively in the gathering matters, your presence here uh, matters, and so... Um, the second thing is that, uh, church, you are much more than a job. And so we love you and are committed to you. We're not taking the week off uh, this week, but are, are here worshiping and, um, with you. Uh, third, the, the kind of church that I want to start is a church that is not pastor-centered. Okay, so uh, what I mean by that is this. It's a, it's a privilege to labor alongside you, to build you up, but my voice is not the exclusive voice of God. No, God has spoken to each one of you by his word. And uh, you do not belong to me, you belong to him. And we're building a church that will be far better than its pastor. That's our aim. And so even as we have sung of the goodness of Christ, he is far more excellent a shepherd and leader of his people uh, than I will ever be. And so because of that, um, I just want to sit alongside you under the same word of Christ, that he would be the one that is exalted and uh, the one that builds us up. And finally, I want you to get a, a real practical sense that we're not on an island here in a ballet studio in the far corners of Oregon City. Um, there are many other churches that are partnered with us, committed to praying for us, and even this morning, um, our Gladstone congregation is practically supporting us by sharing uh, John with us. And so I trust you'll recognize and experience those things this morning. Uh, would you please stand with me as I read now the scriptures? Uh, this is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's uh, go, to the go to the Lord again in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that we get to again come before you, Lord, and we get to hear from you. And like Pastor Taylor said, Lord, we don't have to go to a special place to hear from some special muckety-muck that came down from an ivory tower to tell us your word, Lord. You speak directly into our hearts. 
And so, Lord, I, I ask that now as I get up here and, and, and try to point to your word, that your Holy Spirit will preach a much better sermon to the hearts of each of these individuals here today. Lord, do a mighty work in our hearts. We need it, Lord, in your name. Amen. So yeah, thank you, Taylor, for, for having me. And uh, I just want to do one thing before we get into our actual sermon is kids, I'm going to have you come up here in a little bit and I'm going to give you a surprise. So you guys have to be ready to come up and um, I'll need your help because it's going to be an illustration for our passage today. So just forewarned that that's coming, okay? You guys can handle that? You can handle that? All right, good. So um, I, I'm a bit of a movie buff. Uh, I, I like movies. Um, I used to work at a place called Suncoast Video where they would sell movies back before you could just stream them. And um, yes, I even had VHS the first year I was there. Um, but, you know, the thing I like about movies is they're so quotable, right? You got movies that have these great quotes. But, you know, having a great quote is not really that, that cool unless it reminds you of the movie, right? And there's certain iconic quotes that when you say them or when you hear them, it goes right to not just those words, but the voice and the actor, right? Like you can't help but say it and do an impression, right? And so you have like an accent or you have a certain cadence or um, how uh, syncopated it is, right? So for an example, here's one. I'll be back, right? Terminator, okay? How about this one? My precious. Yeah, we got, we got Gollum, right? Here's one of my favorites. There's no crying in baseball, right? Tom Hanks from League of Their Own. How about this one? I know some of you know this one. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. <laughs> Princess Bride? Yeah, nice. I, I put that one in just for you, just so you know. How about this one? I'm going to make him an offer I can't refuse, right? You got all these different quotes, but I want to add one quote, one famous quote to the iconic list that fits with our sermon today. And Kyle, you're going to love this quote. Just saying. It's a quote from probably the best military general in the history of the universe. He's an admiral, and he is a genius. And he said, it's a trap! If you don't know that, it's from Return of the Jedi, and uh, like, just like Taylor told that I could give you a book, um, Kyle will give you a full explanation of all of the Star Wars that you need. But today, I just start with that as humor because here's the thing, is that Jesus has been teaching. Jesus has been preaching. He's in the temple, and the Pharisees have decided to lay one of three traps for him, and this is the first one. So if you want to kind of get a visual of where we're at, uh, the, Jesus has entered the temple, and you imagine it as a pot of water, and, and the water is starting to get bubbles, it's starting to boil a little bit. Really, for the Pharisees, it's already at a full boil. They're, they're, they're aggressively going against Jesus, but Jesus isn't done with them yet. He's going to continue to, to heat it up, heat it up. As a matter of fact, there's going to be three questions that are asked of Jesus in this section. So if you want to get kind of the, the picture of where we're at, this is Wednesday of the week that Jesus dies, okay? So we're on Wednesday. Friday is when Jesus is crucified. Sunday, he raises from the dead. Now, that's not going to be next week's sermon. We've got a little bit more of Matthew to get through to get there. It's going to be a few months for us. But in the eyes of, of, of Matthew and the disciples, it's just a few hours away. 
Remember Monday, Jesus rode in on the donkey and the people were worshiping him and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Tuesday, he goes to the temple and throws over the tables and cleans out the temple. And today, he is preaching in the temple and the Pharisees are coming to him. Now, he's been teaching for a while. If you remember last week, Pastor Taylor taught that those worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven are those who come on the king's terms, those who acknowledge the king's authority. Jesus has just gotten done doing a bunch of parables, which are really meant to like show the Pharisees how they're not submitting to the authority. And so the Pharisees' resistance to these parables has led to judgment, and there have been multiple judgments on here. It's really interesting that the Pharisees are still haven't got it, right? Jesus has laid all of this out, and we've read those parables, and we're like, how could they miss it? It's right there. But they continue to push against God's chosen Messiah. So here, the first of three questions. Verse 15. If you're not there, we're in Matthew 22. Verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. The word plotted here means to mutually consult. So in my mind, this is, this is a huddle, right? The Pharisees are like, dang, he keeps blasting us with these parables. Let's go over here and have a huddle. And so they get in a huddle and they're like, what are we going to do? Well, we got to, and they start plotting. It says they want to know how to entangle him. That word entangle means to trap, hence the Admiral Akbar quote, right? And this is so sad because the Pharisees, Jesus has been teaching them. He is there to save them from their sins, and yet they want to kill him. They want to destroy him. Like a drowning person trying to kill the one who's throwing them the life preserver. Verse 16, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. So let's review who these people are. The Pharisees are the the lay leaders of the church. They're kind of like elders, but with a little more pomp and circumstance, and a little more authority. And they're all over the place. There's some thousand Pharisees all over Israel. And so these Pharisees are working in the temple. So they're even higher muckety-mucks of the religious leaders. They're the enforcers of the law. And then we have this other group called the Herodians. Now, the Herodians don't appear much in any documents outside the Bible. They appear once or twice. We really don't know much about them. It could just be a slang term for people who are kind of pro-Herod, pro-Rome. We don't really know. But what we do know, based on the word, is that they want Herod to be in charge. Now, Herod is a a person, obviously, but uh, he's got kids that he named after himself. So we had Herod the Great, which was the the guy at the Christmas story who killed the babies. And then we've got all of his children. And one of his children is in Israel at this time, and they're trying to make him the king. They're like, Rome, we don't need you. Let's just put Herod in charge. Now, Herod and his line are what are called Edomites, which is a big, huge word that just means they're half Jew and they're half something else. And so Herod, Herodians are going, hey, we don't care. As long as it's a little Jew, we'll take as much as we can get. Just get rid of Rome. But at this point, the Herodians are working with Rome. So you'll notice in verse 16, it says, they sent their disciples. Now, the Pharisees are like, hey, we're, we're not going to go down there this time. We've already, you know, we're still kind of hurting. We've got some bruises we got to work through from what Jesus has said. We're not going to go down there ourselves. We're going to send our disciples. I think that probably there's a couple reasons for this. I think the first 
is they're going to go, well, they won't know, Jesus won't know who these guys are. Like, the, the Pharisees are known to him because Jesus has been talking to him now for a little bit. So they're like, we're going to send these unknown characters down there. They wouldn't have been dressed special. They would have just looked like anybody else. But what's ironic is that you can't pull a fast one over on Jesus. Because here's the thing. Even though these guys are unknown to Jesus, Jesus knows them. And, and it's even more than just Jesus, oh, he's God, he knows everything. He actually knit them together. He holds them together. In Colossians, Paul says, for by him, Christ, all things were created. All means all. Every single one of these disciples, he created. Everything in heaven and earth, that means everything. Visible and invisible, everything. Whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And listen to this next one, verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So these, these disciples that the Pharisees are like, oh, they'll never know they're from us. Jesus will get caught. Jesus is going, dude, like, I'm holding these men together. I am holding their molecules together. And I think that that's just amazing that they think they can pull one over on him. But they're trying to deceive. That's the point. The word entangle, again, is to deceive, to trap. And so they're sending these guys in. Now, the Pharisees and Herodians are opposite ends of the spectrum politically. The Pharisees are overthrow Rome, get rid of them, and see ya. The Herodians are like, Rome is an ends to a means. We are gonna, we're going to work with Rome. We like them. So they're, they're enemies, but yet they bring them together. This is the only instance we ever see of the Pharisees siding with the Herodians. So why would they do that? Well, I, I think what they're expecting is they're expecting Jesus to answer a certain way. And the Pharisees know that if Jesus answers a certain way, he's going to be in trouble with Rome. But the Pharisees also know because of their own trouble with Rome that if they go down there and they're like, hey, this guy Jesus said something bad about you, the Romans are going to be like, uh, we, don't, we don't believe you. Why would we believe you? So they're bringing the Herodians along so that when Jesus says something against Rome, these people that are pro-Rome can step in and say, hey, yeah, yeah, he did say that. See, they're, they're really trying to set up this trap. Now, as I was reading verses 16 and 17, or just 16, sorry, I was trying not to add tone to the verse here. We don't get this a lot of times in the Bible. It just says, saying, they said, teacher. And I read this and I think, this just sounds a lot like hum false humility. It sounds a little bit like maybe they're trying to flatter Jesus. And I tried not to have that in my reading, but I read this as, oh, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. Now, I have no biblical basis to believe this, but I think that there is at least something there that, that probably they don't really believe what they're saying. So what are they saying? Well, first of all, they're saying he teaches, which is a high honor. You're a rabbi, which means you are someone who teaches. It says that you are true, which means you're a person of integrity. There's no flaws in you and that you teach the way of God truthfully. So the, all of this is, 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 I believe, mockery and flattery, trying to set up that there's this dispute that he needs to step in. I'm reminded of Psalm 55, 21. That says about the person who's speaking to the psalmist, his speech was as smooth as butter, yet his war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. And so I think, as a little extra to what this passage is about, is we need to be aware that flattery is a tool of the devil. It's a tool of the devil. 
Satan has lots of tools in his armory, and he comes at us with them. But this is the one that actually we kind of enjoy and like and have a hard time seeing. You think about the Bible, there are countless people who are taken down by flattery. I just recently taught my students in my Bible class uh, about Samson, right? I mean, the Philistines couldn't touch the guy with swords. Oh, but you bring a lady in there who says nice things about him, and flattery takes him down not swords. J.C. Ryle says, the sun makes the traveler cast off his protective garments far sooner than the north wind. Let us beware of the flatterer. Satan is never so dangerous as when he appears as an angel of light. The world is never so dangerous to the Christians as when it smiles at us. Remember, Judas betrayed the Lord with a kiss. And I think that's important for us to get, is that if the world's flattering us and telling us how great we are, we need to stop and go, what is the purpose of this? Many times it's the way it weasels in to get you to do something else. So this is a, a warning to us. But it's not the point of the passage, so let's keep going. What's interesting is all these statements about Jesus are 100% true. Like, the Pharisees' disciples think that they're like, oh, Jesus, you're so true. You're a teacher. You speak truth. And actually, ironically, they are speaking the truth. They're saying what is absolutely true of Jesus. The problem was is they didn't mean it. So now we get to the trap. Verse 17, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The word lawful there means right or permissible. So is, is it right to pay? Is it a good thing? Now, this tax was not a big deal. It wasn't a big deal. It was one day's wages. I think we could all, by raise of hands, say, I would love for the government just to take one day's wages for the whole year, right? We'd all be for that, okay? So this is not, this is not an arduous, this is not a huge weight, but it's the fact that they have the tax that they don't like because it means they're occupied. It's a head tax. And so what is the trap here? Well, the trap is, is if Jesus says, give the taxes to Caesar, then the Jews that have been following him, thinking he's the Messiah, are going to go, what's the point? Why would we do that? Why would we follow you? You're just beholden to Caesar. And if he says, don't pay the tax, the Herodians are going to run down and say he's an insurrectionist. There was an insurrectionist in about 6 AD who said, don't pay taxes. And you know what they did to him? They crucified him and every single person that was with him. So the Romans do not like insurrectionists. So it's a yes, pay the taxes. They don't like you. It's a no, you're going to be put to death. So there is no way out. All right, now I need the help of the experts. Kids, come on up here for me. Okay. I want you to take one of these. You can pick a color. I'll let you pick a color. Okay, there's one for you. Oh, pink, I figured that one out. Okay, grab one there. You grab one too. Nice blue one. Okay, now you need to stand up here. You're going to have to show the adults how to do this, okay? Some of you have really small fingers, so it may not work. Okay, you got that one right there? There you go. Which color do you want? All right, you want one here too, dude? Okay, so have you guys ever seen one of these before? Do you know what this is? This is called a finger trap. So I'll have you be my volunteer, okay? Can you put a finger in either side for me? Put this finger in or here, okay? And pull, pull, uh, pull really hard. It won't come. Okay, now your fingers are trapped. What are we gonna do? Oh man, how are we gonna get it out? 
See, this is like the trap that we had with Jesus. If he says yes, it's pulling this way. If he says no, it's pulling this way. You can't get your fingers out. But you want to know there's another way. Watch this. If I push in, now pull your fingers out. Oh, pull it out. There we go. Okay, that one you pulled a little tight. There we go. Now try it. There we go. Here, that one's kind of broken. You do this one. Okay, go back to your seats. And your parents, I think, have seen these before. And they can help you get out of the trap. Okay? <laughs> and if adults, if you need a trap too, you can come up and get one. Just leave them on. Yep, just leave them on. Keep you from your phones, right? <laughs> there you go. Okay? So the, you look at these traps, right? And, and it looks like there's only two ways to get out of it. You pull one way, you're stuck. You pull the other way, you're stuck. And this is what they think they've done to Jesus. And Jesus, in his brilliance, because Jesus is a genius, he comes in and says, no, if you push in and you push in, you can pull it right back out. And we see that here. And we have to remember this. Jesus gives a brilliant answer. He gives a brilliant answer. He doesn't answer the question with a yes or a no. He explains it in a way that points out where their hearts are at. So let's look at verses 18 through 22. 18, but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? The word malice means evil intent or wickedness. Jesus calls them right out. Right here, Jesus judges them. He says, you're not doing this because you want to know. You're doing this because you want to trap me. Again, knowing what's happening. He says, you're hypocrites. Now, the word hypocrite was a put down. It was also a word used for actors. Uh, but it mean, what it means is someone who's pretending. They don't care about right and wrong. What they really care about is power. The Pharisees want to hold on to power. The Herodians want to grab it. And so Jesus says, no, this isn't going to work. I know why you're here. You don't actually want an answer. Instead, you're trying to trap me. Look at verse 19. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Jesus said to them, whose likeness is inscript and inscription is on this? And they said, Caesar's. Again, a denarius is the most common courtesy. It's a silver coin that was a day's wages. Everybody used it. The words likeness and inscription mean image, likeness. So a picture of, of something on there. And then the inscription, which is a stamp. It's a seal on there. And the Jews would have seen both of these as blasphemous. The Jews at this time took the second commandment against making pictures very seriously and believed any picture of any sort of a person was an idol or even an animal. And so they were absolutely against this. On the other side, of, besides having Caesar's face on it, on the other side it said divus et pontifex maximus, which means our God and our high priest. Now this is pretty amazing, right? So Caesar says, I'm God. Oh, and by the way, I'm the high priest to me, so I tell you all how to worship me. It's a pretty sweet gig if you can get it, right? This is what the Caesar is saying. He's saying, when you take my coin and you are spending it, it's a form of worship to me because I have given it to you. But the Jews were happy to use it to get paid, but they weren't happy to use it to pay the tax. Look at verse 21, the second part of it. Jesus' declaration, then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This word render means to give or pay back. It's interesting. The Roman law taught that all money was Caesar's, and you were just borrowing it. And at any point when he asked for it, you had to give it back to him. So we see right here, if, if Jesus had stopped with the first one, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. If he'd have stopped right there, he sprung the trap, and he's caught. But there's a comma, and he says, 
and give to God the things that are God's. So what, what are these things? Well, he's told us earlier in Matthew 11, he says, the God is the Lord of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth is what's called a day, which is a, a, a term for everything. It's, it's to say, you know, your beginning and your end. Well, what's covered in that? Your entirety, your in all of life. Heaven and earth is everything. So what we're seeing here is we're saying that Jesus is saying, I'm shrugging this off. I'm not going to answer the way you think. There's no conflict here because everything that Caesar has is from God. Now, in our day and age, we start, to, we start to look at that first part and go, now, what things go to Caesar and what things don't? And I'm, am I allowed to do this? Well, how far does Caesar go with that? And see, I think the thing we need to recognize here is that for Jesus, he just says this and he moves on to the real point. Because if we get the second part of this right, that we give to God what is God's, then whatever we give to Caesar is no big deal. So what are the things that are God's and what are the things that are Caesar's? Now, it would be really nice if we had a nice little checklist. Like, okay, if this leader does this, I can, oh, yep, I can support him. This leader does that, oh, can't support him. Oh, this law does this, this government does that. They assume my taxes on this, but not on that. It would be really nice to go through there. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus says, the problem is that where is your worship? When you look at that coin and it says, he is the one that decides who worship is and he is God, that's the temptation that we have a problem with. What is Caesar asking for that only God deserves? And it's our complete devotion and our worship. You can pay your taxes to Caesar, but don't you dare worship him. You cannot give him your adoration and your praise. You cannot swear your allegiance to him as your God and your master. And see, back in the day, they said the word God about Caesar. We have a tendency to act like government is God. We have a tendency to act like they can do all the things that God can do. And so the temptation for us is to not elevate government too high and keep God where he belongs. Now, some will say, but Jesus really doesn't address the question. Does he mean taxes here? Does he mean other things? What, what is the point? Now, we can go elsewhere in the Bible, but we're not going to do that. We're going to stay right here because Jesus wants us to sit in this tension. He wants us to kind of get a little squirmy and go, well, what things, what things belong to Caesar? And again, that's not the point. The point is what belongs to God. And the answer is everything belongs to God. So that means Caesar belongs to God. All the things that Caesar thinks are his belong to God. All the rights that Caesar thinks he's owed belong to God. Jesus wants us to stop and think about this. So there's three implications from this text. The first one is that Caesar's authority is derivative. Caesar has authority because God has granted that to him. Remember Pilate later on in, in, in our story, but in the book of John, it's in chapter 19. Pilate goes, don't you know I have authority to put you to death or to free you. And then Jesus goes, hold on a second, I need to correct that. The only authority you have is given to you by God above, John 19, 11. Caesar, government and all of its lackeys, the entire and every single state on the planet has the authority only that God has given them, which means all authority they claim is derivative of God. 
The second implication we, hear, we see here is that Caesar's sphere is limited. If you remember in Acts 5, 28, the, 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 the governing authorities of, of Jerusalem and of the Israelites bring the, the apostles in and say, stop saying that about God. And then we get this response in 529. We must obey God rather than men. They're saying, we don't care what authority you have. Our God has a supreme authority. Yours is limited. We follow a God that is without limit. And he has put limitations on you. And anytime your commands contradict God's commands, we are going to submit to him first and foremost. And this is where Christians have always struggled in the world is because we are to be good citizens and submit to our government until the government's doing something that it's not supposed to. And then we are to rebel because of our submission to God. And it's always been a struggle about where's that line. The third implication is that our submission to Caesar is shaped by the fact that God owns everything. We do render things to Caesar that are his. But we also know that submitting to the government is only a submission to the government because we're submitting to God. That's the thing. When the government comes up and goes, ha, you're submitting to me because we're, we're pretty awesome. You're going to go, yeah, well, I'm submitting to you, but not because you're awesome. Well, you're submitting to me because I provide great things for you. Nope, not doing that. So you're submitting to me because we're the best government on the earth. Nope, I'm submitting to you because I have a God in heaven who told me to, and I am worshiping and submitting to him. For the Lord's sake. When we submit to those we're told to submit to for the Lord's sake, we are doing it, and it glorifies him. So we as Christians, we need to be humble. We need to be submissive. That means we should endeavor to keep the speed limit. If we are children, we are to obey our parents. If we're church leaders, we're to submit to our leaders in church. If we're wives, we're to submit to our husbands. If we're employees, we're to get up on time, leave on time, not fudge your hours, we're to submit. But not because those authorities have any more value than we do. Not because they're best at that or the best, better than you at that. This has nothing to do with value. It has to do with what, who do you value most. When you value God the most, all the submission underneath submitting to God becomes joy. It becomes worship. We do not submit because any human authority has the right to us. They don't. We submit to the Lord's, for the Lord's sake. So if Caesar were to come and ask you, why are you doing this? You wouldn't say, because you are the final authority. You wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say, oh, because you are God. Instead, you will say, I am rendering my allegiance to you because of my allegiance to God. Our submission to Caesar is only because we are first submitting to God. Submission to government takes place as part of one's complete submission to God in every area. Now let's, let's go back to the, the coin. You remember I said there were two things on the coin. There was a picture and there was writing. So when, when this coin is looked at, Jesus is saying, yes, render that to Caesar because it's got his name on it. He made it. But there's a picture here for us as well. We are to submit everything that has God's image and God's name on it. God's image 
Genesis 1, like Taylor read at the beginning, make man in our image. God is saying, I made him like us. Yes, you look like mom and dad, but we all have the same family resemblance because we are all created by God. We look like God. So what about the inscription? Well, I already read to you Colossians 1 that says Christ holds you together. He's literally holding you together. But it says elsewhere, Ecclesiastes says, he has written eternity on our hearts. So our, who we are looks like God and has his name stamped on there. So we don't even belong to ourselves. Do we get that? Do we get that we think that we have all these rights and we have this value? We have value because we belong to the king. He made us as we are. So every one of us must give to thing that are, the things to God that are his. And it is those who fear God above all others who will rightly honor the emperor, who will rightly be a good citizen. So here's the point. If we owe Caesar this, this, this image, how much more do we owe God? The answer is we owe him everything. This implication is on entire life. Jesus is not giving us an out and saying only this part of your life. You know, when you were in school, you probably saw Venn diagrams, which are circles, and you had different amounts of covering and so on, right? There's not a Venn diagram that this is the government's part and this is God's part, and they overlap a little in the middle. No, this whole thing is God, and the government gets this little teeny dot here. And guess what? Your dot in the whole thing that God owns is even smaller, but it's entirely encompassed by God's owning of it. We need to stop living the lie that this is my world, it's my world, and it's my house. No, it's our Father's world, and it's our Father's house. So where is that that you're living the lie today? Where is a place where you're going, I have complete control over this. I have utter control over this. You know, one of the things I know that uh, the, the, you men that are going to the men's Bible study, which bravo, keep doing that, and if you're not, join the men's Bible study. We're going through Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes cuts right through it, right down to what's the point? If you're not living for eternity, what's the point? Everything we have is going to be gone. Your life is over. It's a breath. So live for eternity. Living for eternity recognizes that God is in control of everything. It's God's house, not ours. So what do we do with that? Well, we have the same option that the people had at this time. These, these Pharisees and these Herodians. Look at verse 22 as we wrap up. When they, the Pharisee, disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians, heard it, they marveled. This word marvel means to be wowed or amazed, filled with wonder and admiration. They were saying, this Jesus knows what he's talking about. This guy's sharp. He knows it. But then look at the next part of the verse. And they left him and went away being filled with awe and wonder, being filled with, uh, wow, this Jesus is pretty amazing, is not enough. One Puritan writes, there were many in whose eyes Christ is marvelous, and yet that he was not precious. See, it's not enough to be amazed by Jesus. He doesn't want our amazement. He likes it. He wants our whole life. He wants our fellowship. He wants our submission. He wants our acknowledgement that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He wants you to acknowledge him as the only way to salvation and that his work on the cross, which we're going we're gonna to remember here in a moment, is the only way to have fellowship with him. Jesus doesn't want 
amazement. He wants worship. These men were amazed and they walked out and didn't worship. So today, let's not be like that. Let's give him the worship that he is due because it is his house. It is his world. Let's pray. Lord, I, I love your word. I love how you're able to put it all together and help it make sense. Lord, I love that the, the things that were said to these disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians, which are about as far away from Oregon in 2024 as you can get, still apply to us today and can still minister to us. Help us to see where it is that we are allowing other authorities to take precedence, especially the authority of ourselves and thinking we know best. Lord, I pray that we would confess that now. Lord, as we come to the table and we celebrate what your son did on the cross, that we would confess those and allow you to be Lord of our lives like you already are. Bring us into touch with reality. Help us to stop pretending that you are not in control and it's not your world. Lord, help us to be amazed but not stop there and enter into a time of worship. In your name, amen.